Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Ways Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Associated Preserve Edenville community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, Interviewer Tiffany Penniman talked with Dr. Ronaldo Anderson at the University of Central Florida in Orlando about Afrofuturism. Dr. Anderson currently serves as a member of the executive board for the Missouri Arts Council and as an associate professor of communication at Harris Stowe State University. He is co-author of the book Afrofuturism 2.0, The Rise of Astro Blackness. Ronaldo is also the executive director and co-founder of the Black Speculative Art Movement, or BSAM. Dr. Anderson gave the keynote presentation at the 2020 Zora Neale Hurston Academic Conference called Afrofuturism, the Rise of the Black Speculative Tradition. Have a listen to their conversation. So first, could you introduce yourself? Um, just give a little um, background about who you are and why are you here today? Uh, good afternoon. My name is Dr. Ronaldo Anderson. I'm a pro- Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Harris Stowe State University in St. Louis and I'm the executive director of the Black Speculative Arts Movement. And I'm here at the Zora Conference today uh, to talk about Afrofuturism and the rise of the black speculative tradition. And so can you um, tell me a little bit about how you came into your work in Afrofuturism? And first, how would you define that term? First, I just define it as a systematic body of black speculative thought that's been around since the middle of the 19th century with key figures like Martin Delaney, or in the esoteric tradition, Pascal Beverly Randolph, and others who were doing this kind of work before even the Civil War. And then it's mutated somewhat over time. Uh, I would say uh, in the 20th century, key figures, as I mentioned at my lecture earlier today, Zora Neale Hurston, in terms of the esoteric, occult aspect of, of black futurity or Sun Ra, with the way he blends in the esoteric ideas with music and technology. And then in the 90s with the advent of cyber theory and Web 1.0. And now we are currently in the second wave of Afrofuturism or Afrofuturism 2.0 because of the emergence of social media platforms and, and the accelerating place of technological change and then other things that go along with it, such as climate change. And, and it's now maturing as a philosophy of history and, and approaches things like metaphysics, uh, aesthetics, um, theoretical and applied sciences, social sciences, and programmatics. And that is, those are all characteristics of the second wave of Afrofuturism that's been going on for well over several years now. Okay. And so when you were conceptualizing your work, um, how did you make those distinctions between like that first wave of Afrofuturism? And then the second, the 2.0, and then where do you kind of see well, features Well, I, I looked at it in terms of technology and paradigms. Uh, I guess the Cunian take on paradigms, what constitutes a paradigm, mm-hmm. and the Web 1.0 phase of Afrofuturism where you had your online lift servers, web pages, and, and chat rooms, that was fundamentally different in terms of before the emergence of social media with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and these other platforms that allowed masses of people to network even more effectively around ideas, exchange files, 
and so forth. That was a new paradigm came in. And so if that's a new technological paradigm, therefore I kind of deduce that that's going to change how Afrofuturism is thought about in practice also. And so I came up with the term Afrofuturism 2.0 during a discussion with Alondra Nelson at the Alien Bodies Conference at Emory in uh, 2013. Okay. And then from your perspective, um, what does Afrofuturism offer our society at this moment? Well, um, hmm. Depends on what you want to do in terms of offering the society. I guess uh, for black people, it what it is, it's... Um, a way of thinking about and talking about our future uh, and, uh, other than being limited to talking about Democratic Party politics, the Obamas, or yeah. <laughs> other certain type of issues. Uh, if, it, uh, when you begin to have your own philosophy of history that critiques the uh, past, present, and future, uh, which is uh, uh, where you're engaging in a form of community self-critique, but also a certain type of critique on the society, that's going to ruffle the feathers of some people in the status quo. In terms of how you think about it, when you think about it, uh, and then when you add science fiction tropes to it, where if I'm an African American, I think of myself as similar to an alien abduction experience. And as I alluded to in my uh, presentation earlier, the idea of black bodies being subject to experimentations for medical advancements without anesthesia, with social, but the black body being used for the advancement and progress for all, without compensation. Uh, thinking about that, so you got those overlapping tropes of science fiction, real history, trauma, reparations, politics, and that's uh, that's the framework that Afrofuturism allows you to work with in terms of look, just just a snippet of what you can do uh, within that framework. Okay, and and all of those critiques and those explorations of these kind of hard topics to really talk about publicly, um, where do you see um, someone in Afrofuturism really trying to get maybe people that might not know about it to really see these connections as well? Uh, well, the popular culture former was the movie Black Panther to a certain extent, where you see parts of the movie where he deals with ancestral worship, then you see the parts of the movie of advanced technology. You see it also in terms of a, a certain type of black politics um, uh, present, a certain type of, um, of uh, social structure, a certain type of uh, hierarchy present in the movie. So there in the movie you have social studies, science, a certain type of gendered politics, a certain type of uh, attitude towards science uh, and wealth and heritage and metaphysics that are all present in the movie and it's kind of a it's kind of a mashable kind of project where you can kind of see these different from different uh, cultures around Africa and the diaspora that come together in a mashable project that uh, Marvel um, gets behind and, and mainstream studios and I think even they didn't think it uh, it probably even surprised them the effect that it had in terms of how people gravitated toward it. And one of my favorite parts about your lecture earlier this morning was how you talked about Afrofuturism doesn't necessarily mean it has to be black science fiction. Yeah. And so when we think about Zora Neale Hurston and that literary aspect, um, how can we make these connections in how we analyze literature and public writing today? Well, think about it like another book uh, that to me would come under, I, that's why I use the word black speculative thought. Science fiction narrows what you're supposed to talk about, where black speculative thought expands what you can talk about. Like I'd say John Williams' book, The Man Who Cried I Am, or the movie of the book, that The Spook Who Sat By The Door, are speculative projects. You know, the idea of this person who joins the CIA or something like that in a way to overthrow the U.S. government. And there are other kind of gems out there, like Afro Six, which was an underground literary hit for the black power movement back in the late 60s. These are speculative projects, but the thing is, the entire Black Freedom Project was speculative before it happened. You had to imagine it first, and then we began putting those things in place to make it happen. But people like Martin Delaney and them, we had to imagine and speculate about our freedom first before they became concrete vehicles. So, yeah, the Black Speculative uh, thing, uh, a lot of what we've done starts out as an idea in our imagination, and it goes back to that old-fashioned thing, free your mind and the rest will follow. And so it gives us those kind of spaces 
to really think about alternatives to the present uh, that people can work on. Um, and then and there are parallels in other experiences. Um, before people designed rocket ships, they existed in novels in terms of people wanting to get in rocket ships, fly to the moon with the work of H.G. Wells or whatever. And I'm sure a whole generation of scientists probably looked at H.G. Wells' thing. And then they created the science to make it happen. And so that's why I prefer to use the black speculative tradition and say it's beyond just science fiction. We're also dealing with real science also, if that's the part you want to focus on. And so, like the work of the digital scientist, Natrice Gaskins, is the one that comes to mind. Okay. And then what connections do you see specifically between Zora Neale Hurston and her ability to imagine and Afrofuturism in our present and our past and our future? Well, what Zora Neale Hurston did, she drew upon the fast. That was a transitionary moment that Zora Neale Hurston was um, writing in. Uh, I want to talk about it, say, for economics. That's the era of monopoly capitalism that she's writing in after post-World War I when the world economic system is changing from the way it had known with industrialized capitalism of the 19th century. And so a host of other things, you've got the League of Nations that, as a, a, that is formed after World War I because, you know, of course, tens of millions of people have been killed, the Spanish flu. And so she's writing uh, to, uh, she's taking this regional black cultural uh, vernacular behavior and tradition and tries to universalize it into a type of a cosmic consciousness, but grounded in black culture in terms of going, so she's going from the particular to the universal, grounded in black culture, in terms of how to think about the future and how to historicize our pasts and this, in terms of using these past artifacts as an anthropologist studying our culture and then kind of having it overlap with these esoteric traditions to project into the future, kind of psycho-historically. Uh, out of this past related to trauma, this is where the way forward for us as a people. Uh, and, and then, um, and, and out of that tradition, you, know, I think you, do get a peop you do get people like Sun Ra that do that. And so that's why that I mentioned the elements of contemporary Afrofuturism, the esoteric being part of it, that's squarely uh, where Zora Neale Hurston's tradition in relation to Afrofuturism is. And then in your presentation, you mentioned that Zora and some of her other Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, um, they were part of an occult almost? Well, uh, they were, uh, there was a book John Woodson wrote called On Arabian Modernism and the other one to make, to make a Nation. And John Woodson talks about how uh, um, people like Melvin Tolson, whose character people became familiar with in the movie The Great Debaters, uh, he wrote a book called Harlem Gallery, which is an epic poem which has a lot of traces of alchemy in that poem. And then you have uh, people like George Schuyler in terms of the work he produces using satire with Black No More and Black Empire that are a part of this impulse uh, borrowing from this esoteric tradition and as well as Orneal Hurston. And these traditions came from um, these, uh, where they take the black experience and look at it through the context of what people like Gurdjieff or, or O'Rage were talking about and Uspensky because this was a great time of where you had these cross-fertilizations of culture, what they called during the Jazz Age up in New York at that time. And of course, Gurdjieff and a lot of his followers were in Paris. So you had this Paris to New York kind of dialogue going on in the world. And this is at the same time, you got, so you got the Harlem Renaissance, you got the seeds of what would later a generation of what we call negritude and some of these other things. So you have this transnational dialogue in terms of ideas going on at that time that the Harlem Renaissance is influenced by. And, and as I also mentioned, globally at that time, or at least in the West, there's a major occult movement going on. you got it going on in Germany and Britain and, then of course, in North America uh, also. And so the Harlem Renaissance, so what is... What the Harlem Renaissance or what I believe Woodson and a now more recent scholarship is bringing about that the occult and the esoteric has also been a feature of modernity in terms of how people negotiated modernity 
or maybe represent a certain disillusionment with modernity. Like if we're modern and represent ideas of the Enlightenment, how can we just have a war where 40 million people just butchered themselves and used poison gas and all these other things? Mm -hmm. You know, because the modern uh, modernity and then the Enlightenment is supposed to say because we are rational people, we wouldn't do something like that. But of course we did. And then they did it again a generation later, World War II, with the camps and the ovens and all that kind of stuff. So. They were trying to go for what they called a different way through trying to get to a point of cosmic consciousness using culture as a vehicle to get there. And then you um, kind of outlined kind of like a right and left wing of esoteric tradition. Yeah, you got the right wing esoteric tradition, or it's an example might be the Nazis because they were in a cult. They had features of the cult. And then there's the left wing aspect of it where you have these utopian left wing projects also. Sometimes they're engaged around socialism and some other. Uh, aspects of it. And you see those features in other recent uh, theoretical formulations around acceleration of, but yes, you have those left-wing and right-wing tendencies of the esoteric tradition. And so what do you say to people that say that at least Afrofuturism is too utopian or it's too idealistic? Uh, well, those people probably never tried anything uh, when they say it's too utopian. Uh, how many times artists and people chase perfection? You know, uh, sometimes just it's, no, it's not so much about the final project, but it's the the journey trying to get there that you learn some things in pursuit of what you think it will be. Sometimes, so um, so yeah, I would. That's an abstract argument that people kind of work out in the abstract, but uh, I've never seen people that trying not to. Plant the perfect field, put together the perfect piece of art, stay in the studio to create the perfect album or book and hours like that. You know, and you're never going to be satisfied, of course. But you sometimes people come close to those moments of that they can capture that they think are moments of those type of perfection. So um, that's generally uh, how I think about people. Because it's easy. I, I look at uh, the right wing aspect of it that's the lazy way to go that's where you're just giving into base passions and and anger and hatred and some other issues out there that doesn't really require that much discipline so yeah and i think that's where zora like really does a great service in mm -hmm. teaching us even today that even if you don't necessarily agree with someone or you don't necessarily understand someone you can take the effort to like really engage with different cultures um, mm -hmm. across different ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I know, even personally, I didn't know that she was as conservative as she was. Oh. Well, think about it. If you really care about culture, culture is always conservative about tradition and so forth. Um, however, uh, we here, I would say we don't need to look through ourselves through the lenses of others. Because most black people I know are culturally conservative in terms of how we think about family, love, and relationships or whatever. And it's different from other cultures because here we had to fight even to have our marriages recognized or whatever in the eyes of the law. Um, uh, black or Africans here were enslaved longer than we've been free. And so, uh, so yeah, we are still in the process of becoming and so, and it's in our, uh, the national, the anthem we sing from James Well and Johnson, Lest We Forget. So there's that kind of looking back kind of thing of lessons from the past or what uh, the African term Sankofa to still, you know, how do you bring forward the best of the traditions of the past and then remake the other ones that are no longer necessary. And so, uh, so yeah, tradition matters. Uh, yes. And so what are some of those lessons that you really looked back on, reflected on, and brought forth? Well, the, th the thing, when I shared the story of uh, uh, when I've been to Africa, when you go to the Inca and you realize that, oh, they had to be strong just to make it to the coast of the castle and then be in this place for a couple of months suffering and then survive the passage of this. We are the descendants of the survivors of the people who survived getting to the coast, surviving the castle and the family. So we come from a very uh, strong set of people that uh, survived that experience and still be in their right mind and with their dignity intact. And so 
that is why it is our historical experience. We underwrite what would later become capitalism in terms of how we were used to jumpstart capitalism in what is kind of descriptively called the West, or modern capitalism as, a, as a, uh, being tr bought and sold and trafficked uh, in terms of the capitalist accumulation that creates the, the modern world capitalist system. So there's always that irony there in terms of how uh, it has broader implications for theory and critique and politics um, of, uh, of the modern era when it's looked at that way and when Toni Morrison talks about the African slave being the first mod the enslaved African being the first modern person uh, of the modern era and has all those kind of implications that uh, Toni Morrison was talking about when she makes that statement. And so do you think that um, the way that we view Afrofuturism now, especially like with those issues of imperialism, um, mm -hmm. climate change, how can people that are practicing this work and also academics, how can they disseminate their work, um, their practices, and kind of scale it? Well, what we've done, uh, when we started the Black Speculative Arts Movement, we started out in the community because uh, we, write, we enjoy the community spaces better than the academy because the academy tends to be too stifling. And this, we found out a lot of our people rather come to a local community space than coming up on a campus because they don't feel that they're accepted on a campus. And in a community space, a lot of times, it's not your academic rank that holds sway is how much you know. So a person can be in there and know more about the topic than a PhD about what's going on. And then, the, uh, and it forces the the academician or the scholar, if they want to apply it out the classroom, to actually engage what's going on in the community. That their how does their knowledge and what they're thinking about this topic, uh, what does it mean for this local situation? As I mentioned earlier, when we did this, uh, we had our um, conference in South Africa, and a young uh, black woman, Letty Chirwa who was a leader, a 20-something-year-old leader, and she talked about our Afrofuturism deals with the politics of the stomach. So they have to think about how does this idea uh, feed us, you know, because uh, a lot of times we're thinking of different things over here. That's why, uh, as uh, one of the, I've commented before, Afrofuturism, how it's theorized and practiced, it depends on whatever the local population has to deal with, you know, so... Um, yeah, so it'll, it'll mutate and it's flexible enough to adapt across uh, the diaspora to uh, meet the needs of what it is at the moment. So, um, I got, well, for instance, if you're dealing with Caribbean futurity, they got to think a hundred years from now, is my island going to be underwater? Where do my grandchildren migrate to? Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm thinking about my descendants who are not born yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, that might be their own politics in relation to climate change. Like... You know, we stay here, we drown. So, or are we going to build an underwater city? Mm -hmm. Or a floating city like Waterworld? You know. And so do you think from where we are right now and to where our imagination takes us, um, how, what urgency do you see in terms of like meeting these goals too? Well, right now the urgency is not there. I think, um, but like I said, a lot of times... Your artists and thinkers have put the ideas or it hasn't connected to the policy people yet because the policy people are generally revolving around election to election. However, as these ideas become much more and more popular, um, I, always, I generally try to focus, I always tell people I generally focus on people under the age of 30 because they tend to be more open to experimenting with new ideas. I told them people my age, they're just thinking about their divorce, their, their car note, or their house note, or trying to make it another 10 years to retirement. <laughs> so <laughs> they're not going to have a whole lot of energy invested in the future. And many young people know they have nothing to lose. I mean, because I uh, believe they came out with some type of report recently that the net worth of black people in this country will be zero in the year 2050. So you have nothing to lose. We'll try it. I mean... <laughs> They've already said, if you keep doing what we're doing right now, we already know how much we'll be worth in 2050. We already know what the climate, with climate change or whatever. So I believe it was Einstein said the key, uh, one of the person, if you want to identify an insane person, there are people that keep doing the same thing over and over again. So the same thing is to do something different. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So. That's really interesting you say that because 
um, right now, I'm 25, so whenever I try to talk with my friends, um, I'll say like sometimes a crazy idea like, let's cancel student loans for everyone. Yeah. Like I was saying that like three or four years ago. And then like to see like politicians like Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. and Elizabeth Warren saying like, we're gonna take out like on Bernie's side, like all student debt, and then Elizabeth Warren up to like 50,000. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, okay, now it's in the public like discourse. So mm -hmm. imagine like what can be next for like my kids. Well, five years ago, their reparations wasn't in the public discourse. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was like, so we said radical, but now you've had to ask candidates. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, dual citizenship. Not just saying I'm romantic about Africa, is maybe I don't trust people of European descent in this country not to become fascists. So I want a way to leave if I have to leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and that's not me saying bad things about people, just saying I'm hedging my bets against, you know, I don't know what's going to be in the future of the country. Because if they want the country to be a certain way, white people are going to have to get their act together, you know, if they really want there's either going to be some buy-in or there's not. Now, the statistically, they're saying we're becoming more segregated. So, to me, it's not logical to talk about everyone's holding hands when the numbers and the data tell me that we're not becoming more unified. We're actually becoming more segregated. Therefore, based upon the data, the intelligent thing is to do A, B, C, and D in response to that rather than uh, take a reactionary thing of being a victim later just do some proactive steps in response to what the information says. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and that's what I don't see enough of now, people actually talking about the politics based upon what the data says. They're talking about it more upon the uh, the I wish paradigm <laughs> rather than what is, you know. The reality. The reality. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in your lecture earlier today as well that if only just one million African-Americans went back or had dual citizenship... Oh, yeah. Well, there was a country like Ghana or South Africa would be a superpower within a decade. And so do you see that? Well, I tell you what, that trend where a million people from the diaspora went back last year, they really underreported and talked about that. They focused more. That's what I'm saying. They selectively focus on when I saw a commentator who said, oh, the biggest cultural event that happened last year was the R. Kelly thing. I'm like, no, it wasn't. You had a million people, one million, go back to one look, a country in West Africa that meant they saved money, planned the trip, and flew over and made the trip. That impacted, that, that's, you're talking billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that impacted. Now they want to keep the project going and it's impacting the politics of West Africa where they even come up. I think some of the other African countries saw the, the resources and how that impacted Ghana's infrastructure and now they're like, oh, we better look at this. Mm -hmm. So that's going to have a ripple effect far beyond whatever R. Kelly's got going. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our, our destiny in relation to this country. Okay. And, the, and that's where the Sankofa and Afrofuturism part of See, in our history, we can remember when there was, you know, the United States of America. And therefore, as an Afrofuturist, I have to think about, well, after the United States of America is no more, <laughs> where will we be? If we can remember when there was none, therefore I can say, okay, maybe we'll be here after there is one no more. So that means Afrofuturism questions things like a, a, an uncritical patriotism or those kind of things, which makes some people nervous, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know. and it was, like, I never thought about that too. So, what happens after the United States? So, what do you think is the role of an Afrofuturist writer or someone in that Black speculative tradition? Oh, it just uh, think about what does a what does a where, where are Black people after the United States is no more? And we know in social sciences, everything has a beginning and an end. Every empire that ever existed is no more. Countries that used to exist are no more. So what is the logical conclusion? What is the beginning and what is the end? Is it a civil war? Does the country break up? Or uh, right now, uh, they use, I guess in this kind of post-capitalist moment, they kind of use the black body and face as a way to symbolize uh, a certain aspect about America, since they want to put a black face on everything from... I don't know, certain types of awards. I guess artists would call it a, past, a pastiche, uh, kind of a, a coating of uh, this uh, 
blackness as a marketing brand for the United States mm -hmm. uh, to seem to indicate, hey, we're not what we used to be. And but when you interrogate and look at these things beneath the surface, inequality is bigger than it's been in generations. Um, of course, people caught up in the surveillance system of the Jim, new Jim Crow, um, or some people saying we're going into a surveillance capitalism thing. So, uh, yeah, they those discussions are put aside because we have the um, the puppet show via media to persuade us that um, everything is okay. Mm -hmm. It's not okay when you pull the scab or pull the uh, band-aid off of it. It's festering. Mm -hmm. And so I would say Afrofuture is there to, there to look beneath the surface or peel off the scab to uh, then... Uh, that's why in a way Afrofuture are almost kind of in a way like necromancers. You know, they go back and look at the dead past of history and then try to forecast into the future sometimes. And that's the way you could say, you know, that'd be like an Afrofuturism as a necromancer. And then you just give the necromancer modern technology to project his, to uh, be an oracle into the future using uh, contemporary data and algorithms to forecast some things. You know, um, you know so that's... Uh, that's one way of, I suppose, dealing with it. And in a way, it kind of seems that um, just like this black speculative tradition is very prophetic. Mm -hmm. And so like everything that has been conceptualized at that ideal level is now almost like becoming a reality. Mm -hmm. And so what ideas do you even have around like just that prophetic element of... Well, uh, we're going to have to deal with uh, human enhancement. If we know that college students already take Adderall as a performance enhancement thing to compete in the classroom, I suppose the next level of that might be some type of implant that allows a student with more money to compete more effectively on standardized tests than the poor student that can't afford the enhancement. So, you know, because I know a lot of college students now, they take the Adderall stuff meant for ADD so they can study longer compete harder, the same way athletes do that take kind of steroids or whatever. So in the near future, we're just dealing with different forms of enhancement. And I suppose the wealthier you are, the better type of enhancements and stuff and products you can afford. And since we already know it's in the culture where people enhance their breasts, their noses, lips, and so forth, uh, your enhancement, is, uh, what kind of enhancements you have are dependent on how good your credit and money is. And I suspect in a couple generations you'll have those who are naturally born with no enhancements and those who are designer babies to who were, uh, it goes back to what I mentioned in there about Frank Herbert in his book Dune, talking about the Kwisatz Haderach, a genetically engineered superhuman. And I suppose they're going to be genetically engineering these into the military also. So that the transhumanist or or the the enhancement project is pretty much well underway, and as we'll see that over the next uh, couple of decades, or maybe they're going to design people to withstand climate change better than we can now. Say, where usually we wither at one ten, and now maybe we're we have to enhance people to survive up to one hundred and forty degrees to deal with um, some of these issues. It's going to probably change fashion where. We might look like people that are, that live in the desert in the Middle East. That might be the fashion here in a few decades as these kind of European suits and stuff we wear. Uh, the heat and weather and climate won't permit us to wear that. Or we wear some type of full-length body suit like the Freeman people of Dune and Mars that recycles our body waste and water and into water that we can sip on to survive in a harsher climate as a desertification takes over parts of the globe. Uh, you know that so a lot of these stuff we're probably tracking these changes over the next few decades how it impacts style, aesthetics, politics, and uh, food consumption. Okay, and I want to go back to something you said, um, just how it was a conversation in that Emory with your colleagues mm -hmm. um, about not lacking that term post-blackness. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> I said, and Matrice Gaskins got it on tape. I'm talking to John. 
I was like, what is post-blackness? And I remember making the statement, that sounds like two black men complaining about their white girlfriends at a Starbucks in Harlem. And everyone started chuckling about it, you know. So so that's kind of where, you know, we started making fun of the term back then. I was like, I, when did, I asked, I think, when did we stop being black? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know. And I think that was all a part of, the, like, the, a part of the Obama moment, the People wanted the post-racial moment, so you heard we heard the term post-black, post-racial, first black president, and of course, the Tea Party and the alt-right swept all of that away rather convincingly, and so now we got we were kind of mocking that crowd that was trying to advance that um, that notion because, as one speculative writer, what uh, uh, W. B. Du Bois writes in the book Dark Water about the comet. And, so, and the souls of white folk that um, for white a certain type of white people the black people are like a fixed star and when we move out of our assigned position it shakes their world up and it goes back to what Chris Rock said until Obama's election uh, as Chris Rock said the poor, uh, regular working white guy wouldn't want to be me and I'm rich because he can always in his mind say at least I ain't a nigga and so for a lot of white people, the Obama presidency, whether you agree it's politics or not, made them reflect in their own position. And, and it's been my experience, though, that um, when I've dealt with elite white people, they despise poor white people even more than black because they're like, you're black and you've made it. So they look at poor whites as like, what's wrong with you? This is a white country and you can't make it. So they despise poor whites, but they manipulate them and their certain political economic interests to keep uh, blacks and other uh, groups contained from challenging their interests. And so it's like poor whites participate in their own demise uh, just to feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that Lyndon B. Johnson said that, uh, uh, about poor white people in terms of why people understand, don't under, know why poor whites get, uh, don't make alliance or common cause with other poor people of color. All about the psychology and how their investment in whiteness. That they'd rather be poor and white than have to accept leadership or work with people who they feel superior to because they're white. And so, um, and that's kind of what you see in the Congress. Uh, the low level of intellectual debate, particularly when you hear some of the Southern politicians talk, they uh, very rudimentary in terms of of uh, their po their political. Um, uh, analysis uh, very regional they don't really have a national project so it's going back to the unfinished tendencies of the American Civil War the first American Civil War okay. and you can kind of see that reflected in the the, uh, the US government at the moment and you can also kind of see like in the way that the poor people's campaign was very threatening as well mm -hmm, of and course. Like that, um, trying to revive that now too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, Harris-Stowe State University is an HBCU, I yes. was Spelman, and uh, so what conversations are happening at HBCUs, or at least at your institution? About I'll tell you what, the HBCUs, like I said, I guess if someone does a study about this current movement, most of the important key figures from the second wave of Afrofuturism are products of HBCUs. Uh, myself and John Jennings graduated from Jackson State. Uh, Yatasha Womack graduated from Clark. Uh, Tim Fielder is an alumni of Jackson State. Um, others come to mind. Uh, as I talked to a friend of mine, uh, Jackson State was kind of like my first Wakanda. I mean, that space was where you could have a space where you imagine black people being in charge of everything. And so when you can imagine them being in charge of a modern university, it's not hard to make the leap to being in charge of a city or a country. And so HBCUs are laboratories for the black speculative imagination. Uh, at a very low level, you're seeing how people, even when we don't have as much money, you're seeing us in charge of things. And so that is, it becomes a space where you can imagine more beyond those walls. And, and it takes place at those critical years between 18 and 23 years old, where you see that. That's where you meet, you, you have your life on, your girls, your posse, your people in your wedding and friendships that last over the course of a lifetime. Um, and I, can, I guess I can see it like I remember like my, uh, my daughter, I know she just uh, got accepted online for Alpha Kappa Alpha. Ooh, congrats. That's and, my <laughs> <laughs> you know, And that's, you know, Jackson State's where I met my wife. Uh, 
She pledged, uh, AKA a Gamma Rho chapter there, and I am an Alpha from that Delta Phi chapter there. And my father pledged before me at Jackson State, so she's third generation Jacksonian. And so, uh, the, the thing was, the thing is, the next logical step then, what would happen if Spelman, Morehouse, Jackson State, Grambling, and Howard then form a network that is connected by, via blockchain technology and then do some other things? <laughs> you know, when you got a hundred of them using blockchain technology, which cannot be hacked to promote certain types of project, information, knowledge sharing, and file sharing, everything else, that'd almost be like an invisible country within a country to a certain extent and so uh, yeah that's where uh, yeah um, uh, and f and the first black speculative arts movement event took place at Harris Stowe in HBCU. Mm, can you yeah. explain a little bit about that? Well after unveiling visions was over and ended in the uh, was it January of 2016 it started the fall of 2015 then we were in discussions about, man, we had that collection of artists there after our veil This needs to become a movement. And I know uh, John at the time was in a transitionary moment, or I know he had to, uh, I don't think, no, John was not married yet, but John was getting ready to transition in between locales. We're both extremely busy. And I think we were, we, because we'd gone through that process of through 2013 to 2016 of having these events like the Astro Blackness event, the Planet Deep South, and so forth. And I said, no, this needs to become a systematic, ongoing kind of movement thing where we put three to five basic things in place and we go from either black community spaces and, or university spaces that bring us and started Harristow. Then the second one we had uh, was Toronto, Canada. And we, so we go up there to Toronto and hook up with the Afro-Caribbeans in Toronto, and then later Montreal, and then Howard, and then um, and some other places. And so we've just been planting seeds the last 36 months in different locales. And at the same time, doing the movement and networking aspect, we've been putting out a body of work at the same time. So our theory and praxis go together, you know, in terms of... Uh, in terms of defining the work in the terms that we're doing. And um, so for us, we just said, I mean, it might sound a little bit egotistical, but then being an alpha man, you shouldn't be surprised that we, we're going to create the new Harlem Renaissance and we got the talent to do it and we're not going to ask permission about doing it. And so the rest, I guess somebody will write about in a dissertation, <laughs> you know, uh, and it doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing down. Or whatever, but uh, yeah. So, what future do you see um, for Afrofuturism? Um, what, like, do you see a third iteration of it emerging? The third iteration, I remember I talked about it in this uh, article with Design and Daba, talking about Afrofuturism 3.0. Now, I think Natrice Gaskins has an articulation of it that deals with technology, but I'm dealing with like paradigms and socio-political paradigms in relation to technology and other things. And I would say the 3.0 wave would happen when Africa gets involved in it the way that the diaspora did. And the reason I made that argument was the idea of Pan-Africanism really starts in the African diaspora. But then in the middle of the last century, the Africans take the leadership of the Pan-African movement and it later becomes the Organization of African States and now the African Union. And as they've incorporated recently, the diaspora is the sixth zone of the Union. So, the third wave iteration, I would suspect that, you know, as Africans incorporate this into, say, say you have one of their IT schools or an engineering school saying our philosophy for this year is Afrofuturism, an entire engineering school in an African country saying that we're going to use this to apply to making things and critical making and other things that we're going to combine with science. That would be fascinating. I mean, um, that could happen. Or uh, maybe some other thing that I'm not necessarily thinking about, maybe along the lines of what Matrice is talking about. But, you know, I think the next level of Afrofuturism will be in the area of public policy 
and because um, I think there are enough creative people out here doing some things, but now we have to think about what does that look like in terms of policy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And then just in your time here at the festival, um, have you seen an engagement um, that's kind of been enlightening in terms of Afrofuturism's connection to Hurston's legacy? Well, I think for somebody, a lot of people here is just a new discovery. They hadn't thought of it like that. But when you think about people that we cite, talked about in sci-fi, for example, I mentioned uh, Asimov, Isaac Asimov with his Foundation series being kind of a psycho-historian, and Frank Herbert with his Dune series being a certain form of it. So this idea of a psycho-history in terms of in real time around technology and culture, she very much fits into that tradition of when we think about futurity in terms of projecting someone else in futurity and she had her own unique way of doing it in terms of how she combines social science with culture and and the esoteric to forecast this thing that was unique to her and uh, and that I think others when they go back and look at it uh, either try to imitate it or, uh, you know at best you know um, but it'll take a little bit of work and it was similar to what kind of uh, Sun Ra was talking about in, in a similar vein um, so I think, uh, from what I've met here at the festival, you it might lead to some new questions of taking a second look at Hurston in relation to the esoteric tradition and then how it relates to black futurity around the question of culture and social change. Um, and then it's for others who are outside of the literary film, maybe they're looking at it maybe as a digital humanities project or something like that okay. for this particular festival. Mm -hmm. And climate change just keeps coming back to me too, so mm -hmm. um, how we're engaging with those digital rhetorics, the literary, um, just like technological everything as it relates to how we're going to save our culture, save all of humanity mm -hmm. for whatever is to come. So how do you see Hurston, her environmental symbols? Well that's where the challenge comes in, because right now the trend lines are is basically every group for themselves at this moment. She would probably advocate of working with other groups even though keeping our self-respect but the trend lines now uh, based upon the data um, populism and nationalism is the driving force in world politics um, right now and it's going to be on that trend for the next couple of decades. So her work now might exist as a critique of that behavior but she would not be totally opposed to a lot of the culture work going on in that thing. She might have a critique on what the political practices would be, but she would not be opposed in terms of the doing unique Africanist cultural production uh, things that, uh, that it produces. And I w I'm sure she would probably uh, argue that uh, to do this, and I've even told other people that are interested in the topic that do the homework and do the hard work get into the knowledge, don't don't be cookie cutter about um, how you're approaching the work. I mean, you know, just you gotta be good at really good at history and other kind of that's why I call I argue about it as a transdisciplinary process. You know, and so I mean and so to be a, to me being Afrofuturist also means you're gonna be a lifelong learner, you know, and, and be intellectually curious. And um, so, yeah, she, she, she would fit in what uh, is going on right now around this topic. Okay. And so what would you tell your students um, and future Afrofuturists, contemporary Afrofuturists, um, what can they learn from Zorno Hurston and the early generations of black thinkers? Mm. What can they learn from them? Uh, you can't sit around waiting for somebody to save you. Uh, you're going to have to do the work and your work, if you stay at it consistently enough, you'll eventually find out whoever your tribe is supposed to be. Uh, one of the things, I, I think one of my funnest moments organizing our events was having a woman come up to us after the and said, thank you for helping me find my tribe. And so, uh, yeah, because so, a lot of people do this work in isolation. And because a lot of people are not familiar with what the term is and so it's hard to find collectives of people that are all doing 
the kind of work because I know when we first started this, we had to find each other online first. But now, the last three, four years now, you're seeing more conferences now. So it's creating more networks and communities of interest. And then, so I suppose the next thing after the networks and community interest then comes through how the young people, learning from the past, how do you institutionalize your work? So you don't just put together something that's great and then 10 years later nobody knows about it. The challenge that you would learn, the older generation did some great things, but one of their shortcomings was they did not institutionalize their ideas mm -hmm. within departments and institutions so it was ongoing after they were no longer here. The, the institution building part was missing. And I think that seems to be one of the things we're working on in this generation is the institution building part of it. Okay. That reminds me of like Walker bringing Kirsten's legacy back into... Yeah, searching for our mother's gardens. Like, you know, mm -hmm. she had to go back and find all these women that did these work and it had gone away because nobody had institutionalized their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And so I guess my last question, um, what's next for you or... Um, like, well, in the near future, I know we're doing an Afrofuturismo project looking at the black Latin futurity experience. And I'm working with um, the Live Ideas Festival in New York. By, I'm curating a project with the choreographer Bill T. Jones and um, the live, uh, live arts um, community there. The title of the program is called Alter Worlds, Black Utopia in the Age of Acceleration. Uh, we have people like Cornell West is going to be participating, arts and artists and thinkers from all over the country will be there in May. And prior to that event, at the gala, as a part of the host committee, I'll be a part of a committee giving Spike Lee, David Ajay, the architect for the new uh, the African American Museum in D.C., and... Um, the estate of the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, we're going to be giving them like a, a a Lifetime Achievement Award. So that should be pretty fun. So that's all going on in the near future. And I'm trying to put together my first solo authored book where I'm taking all these ideas and stuff I've learned almost over the last decade and put it into my own solo author volume here over the next year. So that's the short term. And plus, uh, the art, the B. Sam of the Black Spectrum Art Movement seems to be taking on a life of its own now. People are finding us, and as I mentioned during my talk, they want us to come to Australia to do some things over there. And uh, we're waiting to see if we're going to do something in Brazil this fall. So. Nice. So yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for speaking with me today, and I mm -hmm. hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast the official podcast of the Zoya Hurston Festival of Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Evil Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode.